Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners, welcome. Very happy you found the show. Regulars, so happy you continue to support the work. Really do appreciate that. A uh, few people emailing me over the course of the week. I really love it. I love when people reach out to me. Um, I'm always happy to engage to the extent that I can. And please do feel free, whether you have suggestions for topics, whether you want to tell me how much I suck, whether you want to tell me something in between. Um, so please do uh, feel free to do that. Of course, I always urge people to give to Counterpunch if at all possible. I really think it's important that we maintain these spaces that we do have, even though uh, the number of them may be shrinking. I think they're growing in importance, particularly given, uh, you know, kind of the hysteria that we're seeing in American politics these days, but also just the the dearth of really reliable uh, independent news outlets. And I think Counterpunch is one of those. And although we don't necessarily agree with 100% of everything, that's published on there, it's probably the best place that I can think of to get that dynamic viewpoint from the left that really does challenge power and challenge some of people's preconceived notions. So uh, consider getting a subscription to the print magazine. That's a great way to support Counterpunch. You could also donate through PayPal, get that tax-deductible donation, pick up the phone, I don't know, tweet at Jeff Sinclair, bother him, that's fun. Uh, Josh Frank as well. Uh, you can tweet at those guys and say, hey, I like Counterpunch, I want a subscription. And and they'll direct you to the appropriate place. Also, if I could do a quick little pitch for my own uh, uh, work outside of Counterpunch, I do have a Patreon page where you can find a lot more of my content, including additional interviews and podcasts, audio commentaries, essays, uh, articles, poetry, a whole lot more. Uh, Eric Dreitzer, that's on Patreon, so that's patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. You could find my work there for a very minimal donation. So anyway, all right, let me turn to my guest today. I'm very happy to welcome him back to the show. He's a returning guest, somebody whose work I respect tremendously, who I follow regularly, and who I really do lean on for analysis. There's not that many people that I can say that about, and uh, this person is one of them. Arun Gupta is back on Counterpunch Radio today. He is a journalist. His work is all over the place. He's he's regularly in Raw Story. He's a contributor to everything from The Washington Post, The Intercept, The Nation, Jacobin, The Guardian, Counterpunch, of course, many other websites you can find his work. Uh, he's currently working on a forthcoming book, which I'm personally very excited about, Bacon as a Weapon of Mass Destruction, A Junk Food Loving Chef's Inquiry in into taste. That'll be forthcoming from the new press in the not-too-distant future. Arun Gupta, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Great to be back with you, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on. We have so much to talk about, and I mean, it feels like things are just... It, I, the Trump news cycle is insane. Just let's, I guess let's just start there. As a journalist, tell me, what, what does it feel like covering issues in the era of Trump? <laughs> well... For me, it's about covering the issues and and it's about uh, tuning out the noise. And and the thing that I I find really absurd is just how much uh, people um, uh, chase after the noise, including uh, the most uh, esteemed publications in in the United States, like the New York Times. I think they've done pretty a really a very poor job in many ways of covering Trump because they're responding to what he says and not understanding the way that he's constantly gaming them and and using kind of the the tactics of of liberal democracy and and liberal media against uh, it itself so 
you know, what what I try to concentrate on is what is actually happening. So that is stuff around trade, around immigration, um, around government policy and regulation, especially when you're dealing with like labor or or women or or the environment. Um, International relations do matter, but I think not not these like uh, dog and pony shows that he's constantly up to. I'll just give an example that it's just like, where I think we would both agree that uh, there's a section of the left that continues to just flub Donald Trump. Let, let's go back about a month and a half ago to his summit in Singapore with North Korea. Now, I don't know if if you saw this. I saw like very serious people, right? You know, and it, there's no point in naming names because I'm not really interested in going after individuals. Um, but they're very serious people on the left who were like celebrating this, that this is great, you know, that he's meeting uh, with Kim Jong. Jong-un and it's reducing tension and, you know, he's ending uh, these war games and, you know, there's no longer talk of nuclear war. And it's just like, wait a second. It's just like, this is Donald Trump we're talking about. Things are not so simple. And, you know, there were some of these journalists who I saw then were just like for days were going on attacking the Democrats as the war party because you had all these uh, you know, prominent liberal uh, figures, uh, pundits, and also far, former Obama administration officials attacking Trump, you know, saying Kim Jong-un is dangerous, blah, blah, blah. And yes, that that is true, that the Democrats were kind of attacking Trump from the right. But what we forget is that there are very serious issues at stake here. And in the last six weeks, we've seen this process pretty much completely fall apart. So this idea that tensions are somehow reduced with North Korea is is completely absurd. You know, uh, Secretary of State uh, State Pompeo, the former uh, uh, spy chief, uh, head spy chief for the U.S., goes to North Korea in early July. And North Korea is just scathing uh, about that he was issuing gangster-like demands. And and we have an idea of what was going on, even though there is no official transcript of the talks. It's just that the U.S. is demanding complete denuclearization of North Korea, right? Whereas the stance always is is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which means that the U.S. has to get its nuclear weapons out of South Korea. And that includes also inspections of of U.S. uh, ships uh, that come into South Korean ports, which are almost certainly nuclear armed. So the whole peninsula needs to denuclearize. So the U.S. is basically trying these gangster-like tactics with North Korea, the Trump administration. This deal is completely falling apart. And it's probably only only a matter of time before we see Donald Trump uh, starts to engage in saber rattling again. And so, you know, we can also, there's a similar story going on with Russia that we can talk about, but this is a noise that I'm talking about that so many people, even on the left, get obsessed with, and they're not, they're failing to see what is the bigger picture going on here.
Yeah, it's almost as if um, everybody knows that Donald Trump is a fake, that he's a reality cardboard cutout, and that you can't trust anything he says, and then everything he says people are going nuts about, as if those two things somehow jive together. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump has this photo op with Kim Jong-un, and all of a sudden, you know, we have a a, a magically restarted a peace process, and we're going to have some kind of magical breakthrough, despite the fact that nothing concrete really came out of that, and within a few weeks, as you mentioned, the whole thing seems to be falling apart. And so is this even really covering politics or is this covering like pop culture? <laughs> that's, that is, that's a good way to put it. And I think uh, you hit the nail on the head that this is a big part of the problem, that we see a lot of uh, left wing journalists. And, you know, we, we could sit there and, and criticize mainstream journalists until uh, till the sun goes cold. That I, I don't find that interesting because it's just like, look, we know a lot of them are bad. We, we know that they have this very kind of narrowed uh, ideological logically blinkered worldview but that's why we're on the left right because the left may not have a lot of power but what it's had has been sharp analysis and insight and able to make sense of what's really going on and i think what's when one of the things that is most distressing about the trump era is just like the amount of bad analysis on the left like for instance and you know i i hate to say like Facebook or social media, but the reality is is, is social media now determines our, a lot of our conversation. And I'm sure you, you have been seeing in the last week or so since the Helsinki summit between Trump and Putin, all sorts of leftists being like, well, what's so bad about them talking? You know, it's just like they're reducing nuclear tensions. And it's just like, wait a minute, no one has any idea of what was talked about there, right? The White House has not even re- released any sort of statement of what they discussed. No one knows about whether they talked about uh, some sort of new uh, strategic arm, arms treaty, limitation treaty. What we do know is is that Trump was highly critical of Obama, like he's he basically wants to undo everything Obama did because it's the black guy uh, who did it, and that also includes the last salt agreement that the Obama administration agreed to. We we also know that the rumors that uh, um, there was a piece in the Guardian talking about how uh, Trump and Putin may actually be try, uh, Trump may be trying to enlist Putin in a war against Iran. You know, and so it's just like these things aren't happening in isolation. And so all these leftists who are celebrating that this is somehow reducing nuclear tensions. First of all, what nuclear tensions were there? There weren't. The idea that the U.S. is going to go to war with Russia is absurd. Ever since the Soviet Union became a nuclear power in the late 1940s, what you do have is very dangerous conflicts on the periphery, right? So you have things like the the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have the Vietnam War, you you have the 1973 Egypt-Israeli wars. Those there are three instances where actually the U.S and the Soviet Union st- started to like threaten a nuclear war against each other. But 
each time they backed off very quickly, right? You never have this direct confrontation because everyone realizes that that's just the end of everything. It's, it's, it's the idea that this is going to happen. So the first part of this question that somehow there's all this like nuclear war tension between the U.S. and Russia is, is where that is um, a proposition not supported by the evidence. And the second part of it is that Trump and Putin meeting are reducing it is just like anyone who's saying that is either ignorant or a liar because they have no idea what went on at this meeting. And this is the type of really bad analysis that we're seeing coming from sections of the left. Indeed. And also, I mean, we have to keep in mind, too, that uh, for every for every argument that, you know, they're de you know, they're de-escalating nuclear tensions. I could, you know, a person could counter argue with it's actually more likely that they're horse trading Syria and Iran than denuclearizing or, or reducing tensions, you know, giving giving Iran over to the Russians and the Russians kind of giving the the Americans and Israelis free hand with the Iranians because the Russians know that anything along those lines is going to drive up global oil prices and fit them just fine. So, I mean, there's there's so many, uh, I only bring that up because there's so many real and relevant aspects to the U.S.-Russia relationship that, again, it's uh, it's a lot of this noise, and it's not just from leftists on social media. Even if you just pull, pull out the New York Times or even venerated uh, publications on the progressive left, you find a lot of really nonsensical analysis that not only is it not rooted in, in, in what's actually happening it seems detached from history yeah i mean I, I i so i will name one person stephen cohen right he he's the husband of uh, katrina vanden Heuvel, who's the very wealthy publisher of uh, the nation magazine and stephen cohen is a serious like scholar of russia and, and vanden Heuvel is also i think she's fluent in russian and and a scholar of R- russia and they've been kind of in the forefront of, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this, arguing that, you know, hey, let's not, let's calm down this like Russia phobia and anti-Russian rhetoric. But in the last week, I mean, th- there was an interview with Stephen Cohen. It's just like, you know, the, the uh, U.S.-Russell relations are the most dangerous they've ever been, even more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The United States blockaded Cuba. They called it a quarantine. There were Russian warships and U.S. warships that that were uh, uh, approaching each other. That could have triggered an actual hot war. You know, there was there was uh, potentially nuclear ICBMs um, on on Cuba. Uh, the U.S. was overflying uh, Cuba, violating their airspace. The, that was a moment where there was actual real real risk. You know, it was still peripheral, right? But it was still this real risk. And to say, like, because of what's going on on Twitter and social media that it's more dangerous now is absolutely absurd. I mean, all these leftists seem to forget that the Democrats are completely powerless to do anything, which is part of the reason that, expo- which is a big part of the reason that they're ho- so hysterical in, in the media and and social media is because they can actually influence uh, the military security state whatsoever. The Republicans completely control that, and Donald Trump pretty much completely controls the Republicans. 
And also, you know, the point I, I, I like to bring up, and I, I want to move on to some other issues because I definitely don't want this to turn into a Russia episode. But um, um, the other thing that, that, that I always say is that do you really believe, and you being the, you know, proverbial, you know, Trump and Putin are de-escalating guy, uh, do you really believe that Putin and his clique of oligarchs who probably have the vast majority of their wealth parked in the West, that they're going to just kamikaze themselves into the grave <laughs> over 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 what over some moderately ideological uh, ideologically different viewpoints about the world i mean come on this is silly yeah and and just to close this out let me just make two quick points one is like remember trump this is this is a guy who moved the embassy uh u.s embassy to jerusalem completely you know really destabilizing middle eastern politics even more as if they weren't destabilized enough enough as, as is secondly he wanted to invade venezuela how crazy is that third he's abrogated uh, the deals um these uh, uh packs with uh, cuba and iran again destabilizing relationships he's destabilizing relationships with all these u.s allies which is like this is not to be like oh nato's a great thing but it's adding more more chaos and just about a year ago there were people were like legitimately afraid that the u.s and north korea were edging towards the brink of nuclear war so why do you think that now suddenly everything is is coming up like you know sunshine and lollipops because he's he's meeting with Putin and i think the last point that what people are really missing is this kind of uh, this growing ethno-nationalist authoritarian bloc or just proto-fascistic bloc that, that is aligning itself together around the world. So it's the U.S., Russia, India, Israel, Turkey, Philippines. I mean, th these are Trump has only affection for these uh, proto-fascistic leaders, and that's a real danger that people are missing. Trump is breaking things, but that's not necessarily a good thing. Just because he's, he's breaking NATO does not mean that this is a good thing. What could come next is worse. How dare you deny accelerationism? <laughs> I know we're all accelerationists now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to have that made on T-shirts, straight to silkscreen. Uh, hey, hey uh, we 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 have the abolish ice movement, right? That's accelerationism. Well, there you go. Um, okay, so speaking speaking of other issues of note, I do want to focus on some things that really matter. And again, I'm not, not to say that nuclear war doesn't matter. I mean, of course it does. But you know, as 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 Sun Ra said, nuclear war is a motherfucker, don't you know? You know, but but there are so many <laughs> other issues that we need to be focusing on. And you've re you've recently written about uh, a couple of them, and I think the. the 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 frame uh, the frame of the piece was basically I think it was and you'll have to correct me if I'm misremembering it but seven seven things that you should be paying attention to that Trump is doing as opposed to impeachment uh, or whatever the title exactly was but that was on Raw Story a couple of weeks ago and I think that it's a very very good piece as a very good reminder of all of the things that are happening and you put right at the top of the list you put the trade war and I want to focus a little bit on this trade war that Donald Trump has sparked because it I think 
is, I mean, it's certainly gotten coverage and people are talking about it and eminent economists and many others are talking about it. But I think that with all of the noise, as we mentioned, I think it's being understated just how important this is. So can you explain for us, A, the significance of what Trump has done and B, the impact that it's having on global supply chains and potentially on the global economy? Yeah. So, okay. Trump has been, you know, he came in, he had been making all this noise about NAFTA and unfair trade deals. And a lot of people, including people who I I admire greatly in terms of some of the smartest political economists of the world were like, you know, they, they were hedging. They were like, this would be really crazy if he followed through on it. Like, you know, I can't believe that he would actually follow through on it. And now we're seeing he's actually following through on it. Now, there is an explanation. So first we get these um, tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum, right, against uh, uh, Europe and Canada and uh, uh, Mexico. Uh, And then now there are all these retaliatory tariffs on uh, U.S. products. And now there's also been an initial round of $34 billion of tariffs on Chinese-made goods and China has responded in kind but this is just this is just the appetizer to the main course because Trump is now threatening uh, tariffs on 200 billion dollars worth of Chinese made products and China is saying they would retaliate I think with the same amount but at that point there's not much more China can do because of the trade imbalance. And Trump is also talking about going after uh, European car makers, which I think it's like something like $151 billion worth of goods. Now, the thing is, it may not seem like a lot because the U.S. economy is approaching uh, $20 trillion. Um, and Trump is not as as dumb as he, you know, this is a thing I've, I've been saying now for two and a half years, that Trump is a genius and, and people really need to accept this. He doesn't have any book learning. He doesn't have any erudition. But the fact that he basically went from reality TV show, destroyed uh, the establishment of both parties, played the corporate media against itself, was a Posed by everyone, every kind of powerful institution, Silicon Valley, the national security state, Wall Street didn't back him, Hollywood didn't back him. The guy still wins. He, he's not dumb. He's genius in terms of his demagoguery and manipulation of, of the media. So the reason why I think he thinks he can get away with this is because on the one hand, he knows he has a, he, he does have a very strong hand because of these trade imbalances. Um, uh, you know, the former Greek uh, finance minister, uh, Varoufakis, he, he pointed out like, look, you know, if, if the U.S. catches cold, uh, Canada uh, and Europe are going to catch pneumonia. I, the, the U.S. economy is actually not that dependent on exports. It's something like only 12 percent of GDP, whereas as Canada, West Europe, uh, you know, Japan, China are far more dependent on exports. I, I think it goes from 30 to 50 percent of, of the GDP is, is export. So Trump is dealing from a, a place of, of strength for one because of, of the trade imbalances. Secondly, and again, this is this to me is really fascinating how few people have noticed this 
the reason the economy is doing so well is because of of the Trump stimulus, right? This is this is kind of on scale of uh, the um, stimulus that was two thousand and eight. Not quite as big, but it's in the same league. The most recent budget deal that was passed in March of this year had about a three hundred billion dollar domestic um, and military uh, stimulus as as part of it. The the budget deal that was passed in September, remember that Trump gave away all these. He agreed to all these Democratic wishes in terms of social spending. What does that do? It gives a boost to the economy. Then you have essentially the Trump bump, right? You know, as soon as he comes in, the stock market goes on this crazy tear. And it's just like, sure, it's only benefiting really directly the top 1% in a lot of ways. But there is about 10% of the population that does have significant holdings in either retirement, you know, 401ks, IRAs. So they see this 40% boost in in their wealth, um, in equities. And so that gives them more spending power. And trickle down does work to to a degree. Um, Then you also have this massive tax cut that, again, some of that is finding its way into the U.S. economy and also boosting the stock market. And then on top of that, you you have uh, uh, these multiple stimuluses, including this recent one, of $300 billion. So the economy is expected um, uh, to expand, I think, in the most recent quarter at 5%. That's almost unheard of in the last 20 years. I don't think there's been any quarter where the economy has expanded that quickly. So even though this tr- these, this trade war seems crazy. It's not as crazy as it seems because Trump is dealing w- from such a position of economic strength. You know, you know. I, feel- I'm ahead. sorry. I was just going to say, you know, I I do get that, but I, I want to press a little bit more on this issue because I do think that there's an element of this that you know I, I agree with you in a sense that Trump has a you know a streak of genius in the way that mad scientists do but I think that ultimately there is a question of how smart is this strategy because yeah exports may not make up the bulk of the US economy but those millions of people who put Trump in the White House are those uh, impacted by a slowdown in US exports in the manufacturing sector in the Rust Belt in those states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and elsewhere you know those states that without which Trump isn't the president those places those are that you know that segment of that 12% that is going to be impacted by this so in a sense i guess the question is is Trump shooting himself in the foot here well that that is a good question so what we're saying seeing first of all with with the uh, steel and aluminum uh, uh, tariffs uh, is that they're starting to ripple through the economy. So you, so there are all these, there are these various stories come out. And where you have to really pay attention is go to the local media, like Google a state name and then Trump tariff jobs cut. And you'll see, so there's like a keg, keg maker that's cut jobs. Uh, there's a nail maker that's uh, cut jobs. Harley Davidson is now talking about shipping a bunch of uh, production overseas because these, 
uh, tariffs are hitting companies uh, um, coming and going. So they're having to pay more for inputs, right? So anything that has steel or aluminum, now you're suddenly having to pay more. But then your finished product may also be being hit by European tariffs. So now suddenly, if Harley-Davidson, if they make a bike in the U.S. and want to sell it to Europe, it's going to cost $2,500 more. And there are plenty of European uh, motorcycle makers like like Ducati, BMW, and so on. And so it's just like, are you really if you if you're someone in Europe, are you really going to pay twenty five hundred dollars more? So that could call. So Harley Davidson said we're going to start shipping jobs out of the country. So interestingly, there's a story in today's um, uh, Washington Post about Columbus, Indiana. Half of that city is. Um, uh, the economy in in that city is uh, based on exports, huge uh, number. And the congressman uh, from that city is uh, Mike Pence's brother. And so now this is becoming a huge issue there. Like there are multiple businesses saying that uh, if they're not uh, cutting jobs, they're they're basically we were going to expand and now we've killed killed those plants. So we're seeing just the first early stages of this. And also a lot of farmers are are starting to get hit um, because of Europe and other countries and are attacking, um, uh, putting tariffs on U.S. farm goods. So this is just the initial stage. The question is, is this going to snowball enough, right? Because the U.S. economy is so massive, you would have to see it go. I think you'd have to see it go into recession before you start to see a lot of American workers who sort of Donald Trump turn against him. And and one final, this is why it, um, there were two, uh, one in the Financial Times and I believe the other in CNBC about the Harley Davidson workers who they don't blame Donald Trump. They blame the European Union. So even though a lot of them may be looking at losing uh, their jobs, uh, they're still not blaming uh, Trump. And I've seen other reports like that, um, like, you know, at other factories that are losing jobs directly because of, of Trump's uh, tariffs, that they are not blaming Trump. They, they And this is Trump really has created the, this kind of proto with him and leader that people invest all their hope in, even against their own detriment. Now, I've followed politics to know what happens. If people start to lose their jobs, they may claim they support Trump elections. They'll, they'll, they'll be discouraged voters. Now Trump potentially loses, but it's going to take a lot of damage for, for this to happen. So, And this is irony of, of the age that we live in. Like kind of the only thing that uh, may save us is Trump blowing up uh, the U.S. economy with this trade war. Very interesting point there. All right, let's jump to a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about the economy and some of Trump's uh, uh, impacts that he's having on the economy. And then from there, we want to focus on uh, immigration and what Trump is doing in regard to immigration and how we should understand that and what is the role of the left in that conversation and in that movement. Uh, and a whole lot more through Counterpunch Radio with us, and we'll be right back.
So um, I want to switch uh, gears a little bit and talk about another critical issue, which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the defining issues of our time. And I think it certainly is a defining issue for the left and for anyone on the left, as certainly people listening to this program are. Uh, and that is, of course, immigration. And it's almost at this point, you know, to talk about immigration during the Trump era, it's almost like, Jesus Christ, where do I even begin? But, um, you know, uh, I guess let me just start with a broad with a broad question for you, Arun. Um, you wrote that uh, I, I believe the description that you used was that Trump's immigration policy amounts to ethnic cleansing. Can you explain that that uh, that phrase and why you're using that phrase and what evidence you could provide that really explains how it's ethnic cleansing? Well, you know, th- this is something I, I don't have any uh, firm belief in, in my uh, own ability to sway people's opinions, uh, even on the left. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think uh, people are often have their own narratives that they can't be dissuaded from. And the reason I say this is because I spent much of 2016 trying to warn the left increasingly, like this guy is extremely dangerous and look at what he's trying to do. And I was writing in 2016 that he has a policy of ethnic cleansing. Now, first of all, it's just like, what did he do when he came down that escalator in in Trump Tower a little over three years ago it was to call you know mexicans rapists and and drug you know murders and and drug dealers you know i i forget exactly what he said but that was the gist of of what he was saying it was to demonize an entire group of people of course first of all the majority who are coming over are Mexican, but they're not all Mexican, right? They're, they're coming uh, mainly from all over Central America and, and some from uh, Latin America and then the Caribbean as well. But they all become this monolithic Mexican group, right? The way that, that Hitler uh, demonized the Jews, but a lot of other groups got swept up into it. Um, so... Then during the campaign, you know, like it's, it's, you know, as a journalist, you go to the actual record and it, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot ever on Trump's website. But on their immigration policy, they talked about returning immigration to historic norms. And there was a link. And I, I wrote an entire piece about this. And it's just like you click on the link and it went to this like extremist anti-immigration uh, group that was what they meant by historical norms 
was basically the 1950s and 1960s. Now, my fam- I'm an immigrant. My family came over because of uh, a direct result of the 1965 immigration reform that ended 40 years of, of a closed-door policy in the U.S. Before uh, during World War One, the percent of the foreign-born population in the United States peaked at about 14 percent. Uh, by the early 1960s, basically right before the bill w- was passed, uh, the percent of the foreign-born population had dropped to under 7 percent, so by more than 50 percent. Now, you then fast forward to 2016, and the percent of the foreign-born population is, again, it's nearing 14%. And and this is actually kind of fascinating because um, what that means is one in seven people are immigrants, right? So you have six uh, native-born and one foreign-born. Interestingly, this is the same percentage within Israel itself also. For every six Israeli Jews you have, you have one Israeli Arab. And it's also the same percentage in India. For every six Hindus you have, you have one Muslim. Um, so it's just like it starts to make me think, is there some sort of like historical like quotient in, in terms of when societies start to, to freak out about the other? So they were talking about returning it to historical norms and people were telling me like oh you're you're just you're just being hysterical and yet what do we see it's not just this you know the thing that really finally um, broke the straw. People had become so numb. It was literally kidnapping children where finally people were like, this is fucked up. You know, you know. of course, when uh, Trump first came uh, into office, there was the whole Muslim ban, right? And people went to the airports. But now he, he just got the Muslim ban legalized by the Supreme Court. But he's also gone after the dreamers. He's revoked temporary protected status uh, uh, for Haitians, for uh, Salvadorans. Um, They're talking about uh, revoking it uh, for uh, Yemenis. They've revoked it for Hondurans. Interestingly, they they just renewed it for Somalians. And I think the only reason they renewed the temporary protected status for Somalians is because they didn't want to have another big outcry against them because of how much people are, are willing to go to the barricades around immigration issues. So there's that. They're also now um, going after uh, the H-1B visas. They're, they're trying to, uh, I, and I was talking to someone who works um, in a, a government uh, job on the West Coast. I don't want to identify what state they work in, but they were telling me that they have 10 Indian employees in, in their office office who are all there on H-1B visas, who've all been like following the letter of the law scrupulously. Now, suddenly the Trump administration is screwing with them. A couple of them have had denials to bring over their family, and two of them have now had uh, their visas uh, uh, canceled. Um, We've seen this huge drop in refugees under Obama in the last year. Now, Advocates for refugees wanted him to let in 100,000 Syrians. He only let in 10,000, you know, and Canada had let in, I believe it was like 25,000 a year, even though it's one-tenth the population. But the number of refugee admissions were close to 100,000 in this final year in in office, and that included something like 12,000 Syrian refugees. Uh, Now what we see under Trump 
so far in fiscal year 2018, there have only been something like 12,000 uh, total admissions of, of refugees, and 12 of those have been Syrians. Not 12,000, one, two, one dozen Syrian refugees. And I, and I talked to, uh, for articles I did about the, the refugee policy, I talked to leading experts on uh, refugees. And they say, you know what happens when refugees who've previously been in the pipeline to the United States are no longer admitted? they die in those refugee camps. They have no hope of going home, and because it was so hard to get them in into uh, the U.S. process, if they don't f- find the if they don't fulfill that process, it's unlikely that they'll be sponsored again by another country. So they will live out the rest of their lives in that refugee camp and and likely die there. So this is and you know what happens when you uh, deport immigrants. Like I was in Tijuana a couple of years ago. I was doing a story. It had to do with essentially a way that uh, jails in the U.S. are ripping off um, inmates uh, through giving them uh, these mandatory debit cards. And in particular, the group that was impacted the most was immigrants who were deported because once they were deported over the border, they had many more technical difficulties to be using their those debit cards. And this is like you're arrested if you have a thousand dollars on you when they release you dump you over the border you don't get that money back you just get a, a debit card um and a lot of more having a uh, difficulty uh using them and the thing is when immigrants are deported they die their life expectancy is demonstrably lower in tijuana especially for men and the vast majority of people who are deported are men there's just huge number of them who end up living on the street. They're preyed on by the cartels. They're preyed on by the police. They're preyed on by criminals. The the death rate among the deportees is just hideous in Tijuana, even if they are able to make it back to the, you know, one expert there told me if they don't make it back uh, to their home village or town within a couple of weeks, they're probably just going to die on the streets of Tijuana eventually. Maybe that's a few weeks, maybe it's a few years, but they'll die on the streets of Tijuana and same way with other uh, border cities. And the thing is, even if you make it back to your hometown, right, you have less access to health care, you have less access to nutritional food, to social services, there's uh, higher incidence of diseases, certainly higher incidence of violence, right? People's life expectancy is shortened. So the deportation is a death sentence in, in one way or another. And so we see across the board That Trump is trying to, the Trump administration, you know, it's not just him, it's Stephen Miller, it's also um, John Kelly, is, as we know, because he was on the U.S. Southern Command, is also extremely anti-immigrant. It's his uh, former deputy, Nielsen, Kirsten Nielsen, who's head of DHS now, who's also extremely anti-immigrant. They are trying to basically reverse this historic immigration trend that's been going on for 50 years. Um, They're also illegally shutting down the asylum process, but who's going to complain about that, right? The UN's complaining about that, but what power do they have? Um, So 
the last thing that we have is then what you hear Trump himself saying, right? He talks about shithole countries. He says they're infesting the U.S. He talks about, you know, he just went to Europe and says they're coming here and changing your culture. You know, he uses, this isn't even a dog whistle anymore. This this is, you know, like a Rolling Stone concert uh, inside a stadium. He's using these huge amps to amplify this language of ethnic cleansing. Um, and so in, in word and in deed, I think that's the way we have to understand this. Absolutely. And, and the, other, the other point about that is that uh, one would think in, that in, a, in a rational world that he would be paying a political price for this kind of uh, fascistic language and fascistic policies. But in fact, if anything, it's politically boosts him because to his base, he can turn around and pull Point to all of these actions as examples of how he's actually trying to make good on the promise to make America great again with all of the implicit racism that's kind of imbued in that phrase. And then at the same time, he's able to turn around and, and point to any failure of his on this issue and say, well, that's the SJWs, that's the left, that's the Democrats and the media and the fake news and all of these other things. They're the reason why I couldn't get through all of the things that I wanted to do. So he's kind of, in in a way, he's backed all of his enemies into a corner on the issue of immigration. And in that regard, he's almost cut the legs out from under them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree with that. Um, I think, though, that there is also a clear strategy, you know. The Democrats could do it, but they're too cowardly to do it. So, you know, the, the whole abolish ICE thing, you know, I, there's been all these thing, things about like, oh, that's terrible messaging for the Democrats. And Trump is being like, you know, bring it on. And the Republicans are like, bring, are, are bring it on. And it's just like, no, this is actually a great strategy for the Democrats. Now, they're not going to do it. What you need is the left to do it. But the left also needs to get over its stupid max maximalism, right? Um, we're not going to have open borders. That That is just a, a, a non-starter. It's also just stupid. Um, there have been a kind of global polls that have been done. And basically, if everyone who wanted to come to the U.S. came to the U.S., the population would double. There's about 300 million people who would want to come uh, to the U.S. from around the world. And if that many people came to the U.S., uh, even if you even if the left got in power and was able to let in 300 million people, um, we would probably see total fascism uh, as as a counter a totally fascistic state as the counter response within a couple of years of that. The U.S. cannot absorb these huge numbers, but we can have a much more humane immigration policy. And on top of that, you know, to understand, like when you actually talk to refugees a few years ago, like it's, it's one story sticks out. I've, I've interviewed lots of refugees. Refugees. This woman from El Salvador, who she came over the border um, I, without documentation. She was smuggled across the border, uh, and she slowly brought all her children over. And the re- she says, like, you know, no one wants to leave their home. I didn't want to leave my home, but 
I watched one of my children starve to death and there was nothing that I could do about that. And it's just like she was then I I had to come to the U.S. to be able to make a, a better life uh, uh, for them. Right. People don't want to leave their home. Uh, but because we have destroyed uh, Central America and so much of Mexico because of our foreign policy and economic policies and migration policies, you know, we owe it to people. But the long term solution is genuine economic social development that the U.S. should be funding as, as a form of reparations. So people don't have to come to the U.S. Um, if they don't want to to have a decent life. But in terms of the abolish ICE, look, first of all, religiously, there's a huge movement of the religious left that completely supports abolish ICE. And this would be very powerful because we saw the Trump administration, they were using that um, passage Mike Pence did from Romans, I believe, that slave owners would use. The left could for once own this on on religious ground, right? You know, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph were refugees, right? You know, we should be welcoming uh, uh, refugees and immigrants. And I saw there's an interesting article also in the Washington Post about this congregation. Um, it's it's a long form piece uh, in a uh, um, uh, Southern Alabama, uh, people grappling with the question of whether to support Donald Trump because he's an adulterer. And there, there was this one guy who said, like, you know, when when Donald Trump says shithole countries, I I can't agree with that because what was Nazareth? The Nazareth was a shithole, and that's where Jesus came from. And so, you know, the best people in the world can come from shithole countries, right? For once, the left could own this on on religious grounds. Secondly, on on political grounds, it should be much more aggressive. Trump is constantly attacking immigrants, right? This is a war on immigrants. The media is saying that. They, They still won't say ethnic cleansing, but it is a war on immigrants. Why aren't the Democrats and unions and liberal groups out there doing a campaign? It's just like, who do you think, you know, picks your food? Who cooks your food? Who takes care of your lawn? Who is designing all your technology? Who's in your hospitals? Who's in the, the schools and universities? It's just like, it's full of immigrants, the American economy. There needs to be a campaign to humanize immigrants, and, and yet liberals and the Democrats have not taken this up. This is something that I think the left should be doing. Then finally, the third piece is politically, we need to address, you know, the carceral state, Um, you know, in terms of there's been all this criticism of the Democrats justified the Clinton administration, the way they supercharged mass incarceration, you know, 100,000 cops on on the streets, um, the immigrant illegal immigration act that Bill Clinton passed in 1996. This is where you start to see the huge growth in uh, uh, or the acceleration in, in mass incarceration takeoff under the Clinton era. Then under Obama, what we see is, you know, while I think the whole deporter in chief label was a good slogan, it's not really accurate. But he did use ICE to rip apart over a million families, right? ICE is nothing but an internal deportation force. And this is what I mean by talking about the left needs to get beyond its maximalism. Look, if we want to actually change a situation, you can't be arguing for open borders. You can be arguing against militarizing the border. You can. You, we should be arguing for having... Um, 
a proper uh, humane asylum process, a proper refugee process, but you're not going to be able to win this debate by calling for open borders. But you can win the debate by saying abolish ICE, it's a deportation force, and start to show all the families that are being ripped apart. I mean, you know, just in my own reporting, I've found families who've, who've been ripped apart, and some of them would be willing to go public. So what, what's a term that Trump uses, like angels or something, for like, you know, uh, uh, the uh, families who've had uh, people allegedly killed by undocumented immigrants? Fallen angels? I don't know. Um, yeah, something, something stupid like that. There are 10,000 for every case where, you know, maybe an immigrant kills someone. And usually it's just a traffic accident, uh, by the way. Um, it, it, there are 10,000 cases of families being ripped apart, right? The, the left and liberals could very much own this issue. And I think it's actually a winning issue. But you're not the Democrats are too cowardly and too, too much caught up um, with being managers of, of kind of the imperial state abroad, and the carceral state at home to take on this issue. But I think the left should have like, very strategically be like abolish ice, but not start to get into its asinine maximalism of abolish borders. Yeah, I couldn't agree more on the issue of uh, use, using immigration and these and these uh, these points as kind of a jumping off point for a real national campaign. Now um, we're just about out of time, but before we before we go, I just want to finish up the point on immigration. And I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you a question, Arun. But obviously, there's uh, an ulterior motive in asking this question because it's going to open up a line of inquiry that I'd like to follow for just a minute or two if we could. Um, when we're talking about immigration, one of the things that's so striking is just how uh, how weak and 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 uh, in some senses, I guess, cowardly, although just ineffective, may be the most appropriate word that Obama was when it came to immigration. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the achievements from the immigrant rights movement, I mean, this is all really attributable to very hardcore and very courageous activism from a lot of activists on the ground at the grassroots level, DACA, the Dreamers, you know, etc. These things, these were very tangible victories that were won. But what I want to what I want to mention here is the fact that almost every one of those, um, you know, call them accomplishments or call them concessions from the Obama administration, uh, they were incredibly ephemeral because Trump has come in and within 18 months, he's seemingly smashed up the whole the whole joint. You know, uh, all of those things are pretty much irrelevant now. If they're not scrapped, then they're being attacked and undermined in various ways. So the first question I want to say is, doesn't this demonstrate for us how uh, ineffective Obama was at achieving lasting protections for immigrants. And I'll follow up that question with, I, I think you know where the direction I'm going about this whole Obama issue, but <laughs> let's start with that. Isn't it an example of how weak and ineffective Obama was? I, I, I would totally agree with that, but I, I, I've actually been rethinking um, Obama himself, right? You know, when, when he came into office, I, I wrote a piece and 
It's it. I mean, literally weeks after he, he was elected, saying what he's going to do is bail out neoliberalism, right? And 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 because it, again, if you actually were paying attention to what was happening, that's uh, uh, what he was saying, and that's what uh, you know, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, who were his uh, main uh, economic team, were were talking about doing. And the reason I say this, if you go back uh, ten years, there was all this like excitement about a green new deal or a new new deal about you know millions of government jobs b- building a clean energy economy that that was never in the cards but now i'm just like you know what Obama was a true conservative, and that's how we really need to to think of him as, that he was actually a classic conservative. He was conserving government powers, respecting the rule of law and government institutions. He would never really challenge anything. He was about being a capable manager abroad, you know, so he wanted to rationalize uh, the the war on terror, you know, it's just like, let's... Um, uh, pull the plug on the Iraq war, but, you know, fight the Afghanistan war more effectively, while domestically, he was just trying to get the economy going again, but he wasn't trying to stop anything uh, bad for happening. They were attacking uh, uh, unions, they were attacking uh, public ed- education, you know, th- th- these are very conservative positions, and the healthcare was all about rationalizing the costs. Um, I, I for the last 10 years, uh, nearly, I've been telling people, go find the Washington Post article the day before he was inaugurated, where he sat down with the, their editorial staff. And the headline was that Obama promises to reform entitlements, right? So you're dealing with the worst economic crisis in three quarters of a century. And Obama was looking to use it to cut Social Security and, and Medicaid. Now, thankfully, that didn't happen. But that showed what his his true politics are. So when it comes to immigration, he didn't do anything, even though he had this uh, supermajority in in Congress. And even if they didn't have a supermajority, they could have changed the filibuster rules, just just like uh, the Republicans are changing the filibuster rules to um, uh, force through. Um, a, an immigration uh, bill, basically an amnesty, or when he left office, if if he really cared about you know the millions of people under attack who are going to be sent to early deaths because who Trump wants to send to their early deaths, he could have wielded his pardon and just issued a blanket amnesty, um, the way that uh, you know uh, Trump is uh, now handing out uh, uh, pardons like uh, candy canes uh, at at Christmas. So, but time and again, what we see Obama doing is as a very conservative president. So after, I mean, it's it's complicated. You know, I did talk to one immigration lawyer who's just like, look, a left wing immigration lawyer who works in Southern California, and he's like, look, I'm not justifying this, but you you have to understand what was going on is that Obama was looking for some sort of grand bargain on immigration with the Republicans. And they were saying, well, enforce the law and then we'll come to the table. And so that's where you see this like high level of deportations, you know, the the deportations, interior 
deportations really start to uh, skyrocket in 2007. And and so that continues under the Bush administration uh, until 2008. And Obama kept it at that high level in 2009, 2010. And finally, it's in 2011 when the Tea Party Congress comes in where you start to see it decline. But by 2016, the interior deportations had dropped by something like 65 percent. Right. So it's still it's still not great that, that you know, there's still something like 70,000 immigrants who are being uh, deported a year from in, inside the U.S. But that was a lot better than 200,000 a year. And much of that, as, as you said at the outset, can be attributed to to dreamers, to the uh, Latino left, to the r- religious left. What's interesting is is kind of the secular left uh, plays a smaller the the smallest role. Um, uh, unions also played somewhat of a, a role, uh, uh, depending on uh, you know which unions where they were located, etc. Et so we did see significant progress, right? And then DACA, and if Clinton was elected president and, and this is, I'm not, you know, Clinton lost only because of Clinton, right? I'm not one of these that it was, you know, Russia or whatever that cost her. She ran a terrible campaign. But if she had been elected president, we would have seen DACA and DAPA, which was deferred action for parental arrivals, upheld because it was based on a very conservative legal principle, which is prosecutorial discretion. And all that means is prosecutors have to have the right to decide what to prosecute. Otherwise, they would be overwhelmed with cases. And that's so, you know, Obama is a constitutional scholar. He understood this, but they waited way too too long to uh, uh, implement DACA and DAPA. It wasn't until 2014. So it didn't have time to wind its way through the court systems uh, before a new president comes in. If those two had been upheld by the Supreme Court, you would have seen uh, basically about half of undocumented immigrants, uh, a little more than half, would have potentially been protected. Obviously, that's not great. It still lead, it it only gives them this kind of like partial and temporary um, protection, which can be renewed, and it still leaves um, something like five million at threat of deportation. But if you actually deal with a, a immigrants, this would have made a huge difference in people's lives. And I think this is you know a, a point that I think is important to make is the the Facebook left, the social media left often treats people as just categories and abstractions. And, you know, if you if if it's six million undocumented immigrants could have been able to come out of the shadow, even with a provisional legal status, that would have been huge. It would have been something to build on. And it's just like instead of going for these maximalist things that are never going to happen, like abolishing borders, like abolishing uh, states, let's actually fight in the real world for things that uh, affect people's lives. And that's how you build towards a greater success. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that really kind of segues us into the final point that I want to mention. And I know we're well over the time. And Arun, I'm sorry. I know I kept you longer than you wanted me to. But uh, you kept talking. So I guess it's on you, bro. Um, So uh, I I mentioned this question about Obama, partially because I think it's an important subject to kind of um, go through, especially in a sort of retrospective way way, but also because kind of what you were just alluding to there in your in your final comments that 
there are some, and you know, it's not just like the Facebook left or whatever, but there are plenty all over the left, whether it's older leftists or, you know, uh, uh, you know, self-styled radicals or whatever you want to, whatever, you know, sub sect of the left you want to point to. There are those who engage in, I guess, what could be called whataboutism uh, when it comes to Trump and immigration, because any time, or really, actually, I would say <laughs> with regard to Trump and just about anything, but in particular immigration, because uh, what happens often, and I, I've come across this God, so many times it's just infuriating, is that you want to talk about immigration, you want to talk about what Trump's doing and the material impact that it's really having on the ground with real people and real families and real workers and so forth. And um, you often come in, you know, come against this idea that, oh, well, 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 what about Obama? Obama was deporting all these people. Obama was the deporter in chief. Obama was deporting millions of people. Obama, Obama, Obama. And the problem with that is that it's not an attempt to have a measured analysis that puts what's happening today into a certain kind of a perspective and, and within a logical narrative and within a historical context, but rather it's this sort of false equivalence. It's a way of almost, and I don't know whether this is intentional, unintentional, conscious, subconscious, it's a way of almost kind of de facto supporting Trump by deflecting the blame onto Obama. Obama. And it's not simply saying, oh, Obama's great or Obama's terrible. It's to point out that when you do that, you are delegitimizing the critique of the current administration. And I find this time and time again, and I know, Arun, you're aware of this since I commented on this to you, but, you know, I was speaking with the with a union organizer friend of mine who works with Spanish speakers on construction sites throughout the area where he lives. And I asked him point, I asked mm -hmm. him point blank, I said, What's it like now compared to the Obama era, considering how many deportations Obama was responsible for and so forth? And his answer was actually quite stunning. He said, it's not even comparable. He said today they live in fear, that it is a state of fear that immigrants live in today and that it is simply not comparable to what was happening under Obama. And I bring this up to say, why don't leftists talk to actual immigrants when forming their uh, talking points about immigration? And why does some segment of the left feel this compulsion to constantly deflect everything onto Obama? Is that their way of justifying that they were right over these eight years and that they're just scoring points for themselves? How do you read this bizarre need to constantly say, what about Obama? Well, I, I think, um, first of all, it's it has to do with the the nature of, of social media, right? The I, I, the medium is the or what's now mixing it up. The message is the medium. Marshall McLuhan, or, uh, the medium is the message, or and then the, the medium, medium is the message. massage is right. the follow up. The mass yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the media and so social media selects for ephemeral, for the flamboyant, for the extreme. Having a rational, nuanced. Uh, discussion means that you're going to have to write a, a good bit and 
and when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or Twitter feed, you can only concentrate on a few words at a time. So it's much easier to just throw out some sort of dramatic slogan like, you know, Obama was a deporter in chief. You know, that's that's something very like polarizing and definitive rather than being like, you know, I wonder how many. Now, the, the, the thing about a deporter in chief that's also complicated is it does come from the immigrant rights movement uh, to be begin with, but whatever, that doesn't make it accurate. Um, there there's some measures that you can use that show that Obama had the fewest uh, deportations of any president um, since uh, uh, Lyndon uh, Baines Johnson, right, going back 50 years. Now, that's why I talk about the interior removals, because they are much worse. But I think a lot of the whataboutism is it's precisely because people are actually disconnected um, uh, from uh, social movements, uh, from uh, organizing. And I don't remember whether it was uh, um, Coburn who said something like this uh, about why, like, you know, Christopher Hitchens became a reactionary was because uh, um, he was completely disconnected um, from social movements. Uh, and so so I think that's what happens if if you are not actually in in engaged with social movements, either as an organizer or an activist. And I think it's vital that journalists be engaged with the social movements, really keep in touch and know what's going on. There is this tendency towards reactionary politics, and I think what aboutism is a form of that because what it's saying is because there is ultimately no difference between. Trump and Obama. It's only about degrees that this is not something that is uniquely horrible, you know. And the thing is, like, I could I could not have a discussion about where I where I said, like, well, you know, as bad as Obama was on foreign policy, he wasn't as bad as Bush, and he certainly is not going to be as bad as Trump will will potentially be because they'll be like, oh, well, what about Libya? And it's just like, well, yes, that's on him and Honduras are on him. Though what's interesting about both those cases was it was Hillary Clinton who who um, was uh, the one who was uh, really the hawk in both those cases. Whatever, but Obama he also lover. signed. Right, exactly. I get Obama lover. I get you're a liberal, you know. Uh, you're a Clinton lover. Um, but, you know, he did sign the deal with Iran to to de-escalate the crisis there. There was the removal of, of uh, uh, most uh, uh, U.S. forces uh, from Iraq. There, there was a, the normalization uh, with, with Cuba. Um, so there's no allowance for nuance in terms of social media. But I think it, it's also people who... They have no power, um, and this is why I think a lot of the I've I've been thinking a lot about this. Why is the whataboutism so so appealing? It's because people who have no power other than a particular analysis, and they are so dead set on ma maintaining uh, that analysis because it becomes a, a essentially a fantasy, a way for them to explain the world. It's kind of uh, so 
somewhat it starts to rise to almost like a global warming denialism for them, right? Because they're they're denying what's going on before them. If you are saying that Donald Trump is doing nothing different than what Obama did, and you know, it's just like you are completely denying that we are undergoing one of the great waves of ethnic oh, cleansing no, 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 in, in the twenty first no, century. No, 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 no. It's actually a structural critique that they're providing when they say that well what about obama what they're really saying is you gotta see the structure (laughs) it's a system maroon i mean come on man you know that it's all one system bro (laughs) right and 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 that's the thing it's uh and and i actually started calling them uh uh people who know everything and do nothing I think that's that's what they really are. You know, they they don't actually do anything. And and frankly, like I don't like like I really don't like um, identitarianism. I think you have to like have a real analysis of how identity uh, operates in our society, especially with class and capitalism and, and how different identities interact with each other. But I don't like kind of the the uh identitarianism and but you know it's just like after dealing with this like constantly for the last two years it's just like it's about like i'd say 85 to 90 percent uh, white guys who are into the what of what aboutism yeah that's um, my that's my experience too i i think that's very much true and i just want to finish up uh you know our conversation here and, yeah. and a quick a quick point yeah. about that it's 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 and the reason I say that is from a materialist analysis. It's those people who have no personal uh, skin in the game literally are the ones who are most into whataboutism because they're not affected by any of this. They're not affected by the reproductive rights laws. They're not affected by the immigration ban, the Muslim ban. They're not affected uh, uh, by uh, Trump encouraging police uh, violence and uh, revoking all these uh, consent degrees. Often they're not in unions either. So these are people who are actually acting out of their racial privilege or gender privilege, their class privilege, who who are all into the what about it. Yeah, and I think it's also an element of performance, right? You have to perform. You have to, you have to demonstrate for everyone your own righteousness in the face of the unrighteousness righteous morons who go from election to election thinking that these things matter and that uh, policies make a fucking difference. I mean, what morons, you know? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. Well, we're way we're way over the time. I could go on that for about 700 more episodes just talking about that that issue alone, <laughs> but we will have to leave it there. I do apologize for keeping you over the time, Arun, and for keeping my listeners uh listening if they still are. That would be wonderful. Um, but anyway, I really appreciate you coming on the show again, Arun Gupta, uh journalist. You can find his work all over the place. Follow him on Twitter, follow him on Facebook, and look for that book uh, uh forthcoming so anyway, uh, Arun, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always. Please do feel free to reach out and I will speak to you again real soon.